Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Peter Goralnik, the author of the critically acclaimed Elvis Presley biography, Last Train to Memphis, brings us the life of Sam Phillips, the visionary genius who single-handedly steered the revolutionary path of Sun Records. The music that Sam Phillips shaped in his tiny Memphis studio with artists as diverse as Elvis Presley, Ike Turner, Howlin' Wolf, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash introduced the sound that had never been heard before. He brought forth a singular mix of black and white voices, passionately proclaiming the vitality of the American vernacular tradition, while at the same time declaring once and for all a new integrated musical day with extensive interviews and firsthand personal observations extending over a 25-year period with Phillips, along with wide-ranging interviews with nearly all the legendary Sun Records artists. Peter Goralnik gives us an ardent, unrestrained portrait of an American original as compelling in his own right as Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, or Thomas Edison. It was a real honor to speak to Peter Goralnik about his new book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. And I started the interview by asking Peter to take us back to those early days when he first met Sam Phillips. I met him in 1979, and I met him in a flood uh, because the uh, he had just opened his new studio, built his new studio for WLVS on Mount Moriah Road in Memphis, and uh, the sprinkler system had let go. And I'd been trying to get the interview for 10 years, and uh, uh, Sam's son, Knox, who had been my principal advocate and has been my greatest friend over the years, uh, came out to tell me, well, we'd have to postpone the interview. Uh, and I said, well, gee, uh, I didn't know if I could wait another 10 years, so I said, can't I help? And I spent eight or nine hours, uh, you know, uh, working against the raging flood wash, <laughs> I mean, carrying buckets, and, you know. But when I met him, it was really as inspiring a meeting, or the most inspiring meeting I think I've ever had. And it was inspiring not because of the music, but in a sense because of the philosophical context in which he put the music. And it validated so many of the things that had been on my mind for so long, really about freedom and nonconformity and how hard we have to struggle. This would be a lesson that could apply equally today. How hard we have to struggle against the rising tide of conformity and how precious our individual freedom is. I mean, Sam spoke of in individualism in the extreme. As you know. uh, he, um, but how if we don't cherish that individualism, then we're going to lose our freedom and we're going to wake up in jail someday and not even know it. And that was the context in which... So whether I knew at that time... I mean, I I was at that, at that time uh, uh, working on Lost Highway and Sam's... Uh, the, uh, the profile of Sam is, is the last chapter in Lost Highway and the ringing defense of freedom are the last words. Uh, and then I went on to do Sweet Soul Music and I was not thinking about becoming a biographer. I, well, I've never thought about becoming anything except a professional baseball player, which didn't really work out. Yeah. But, uh, but, I, I, uh, but it was on my mind. It was like meeting Sam Cook's uh, business partner, friend, mentor, J.W. Alexander, and uh, just a couple of years later in 81, I knew from that moment I had to write something more about Sam Cooke, whether, I don't know if I envisioned a biography, but I knew that was what I wanted to do, and uh, with Sam Phillips, I felt I couldn't just leave it there. How much time, but, but this, 
book is that the research is just there's so I thought I knew a couple things about Sam Phillips and I'm just astonished at the the depth of uh, information that you present. How, how long did you spend uh, researching and writing? And any idea how many people you talked to for the Sam Phillips book, Peter? You know, I, I I don't know. I mean, it it the thing is that it's like the Sam Cooke biography was published in 2005, and I could say I spent 25 years on it. But you know, I yeah. it just was off and on. And with Sam Phillips, it remained such a compelling interest for me from '79 on. Uh, I didn't begin the actual writing until uh, I'd say about 2007. So that's call that seven or eight years of of working on it. But but so many of the interviews go back even to before I met. Uh, the time I met Sam Phillips, I mean, to Jack Clement or Scotty Moore, who were chapters in Lost Highway, and I was always fascinated, not just by Sun Records, but by the whole era that preceded Sun Records, by Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Joe Hill Lewis, Little Junior Parker, you know, by this, by this incredible African-American blues and rhythm and blues that Sam had dedicated his life to recording, and, and that, for me, formed the foundation of everything. But I, I don't know how many I, people I interviewed. Probably, you know, it's it, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I spoke. I spoke with most of the, you know, most of the Sun artists, and uh, uh, over the years, you know, uh, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, just you know, uh, Rufus Thomas. I mean, just a whole bunch of Mike Turner, and uh, and and then really it was when I was working on the Elvis biography that I came to speak more and more often with Sam, and that I went from sort of a Point of distant, uh, distant admiration to something approaching friendly, and then maybe friend. But it was not like 25 years of friendship. And Sam was very emphatic on that point. He said to me a number of times. He said, "You know, my son Knox loved you from the minute he first met you, but I didn't." <laughs> <laughs> because he believed in each side. You've got to maintain. You, you have to maintain your distance. People won't. You know, he, he that was just his nature. And he said, "You know, he told both Knox and his brother Jerry." He said. You let him get too close, they'll push you off the cliff. So it, it took him a while before he decided I wasn't going to push him off the cliff. <laughs> Talk a little bit about uh, his, his days in radio as a, as a radio guy myself. I thought this was very fascinating. I really had no idea that Sam Phillips had, had worked that, that extensively in radio before, and it makes perfect sense, but uh, before he uh, opened up the, the studio and got the label founded. Talk about his radio days a little bit. Well, radio was really his first love, and it was his last love, too. It's what he went back to after he left the record business, and, and he committed himself to it wholeheartedly as he did everything. But he went into radio almost, it was kind of accidental, uh, when he was 19 years old, or 18 years old, actually, uh, and a junior at uh, at Coffey High School in Florence. And uh, he uh, this was at WLAY uh, in Florence, and his future brother-in-law, Jimmy Connolly, uh, heard him or had him announce a radio broadcast of his little band, his swing band or his dance band, uh, which he formed as sort of as the uh, outgrowth of the marching band that he was captain of in, at Coffee High. And Jimmy Connolly said, "You know, you you've got a great announcing voice. You know, would you go on the air?" And he did as a as a junior at Coffee High School. Then he had to drop out of Coffee High, and radio became his career. He had wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer, like. Clarence Darrow, writing the wrong society, you know, seeking out the causes of, uh, seeking out the causes of crime. Uh, I mean, really, pretty much along the lines of Black Lives Matter today. But he wasn't able to. He had to quit school because his father died, and so he continued his career in, in radio. 
and was at WLAC in Nashville in 45, uh, which was a great station, you know, a uh, 50,000-watt clear-channel station. Uh, but his mind was always on Memphis. And so when he got an offer, to, I mean, this goes, it was on Beale Street. That, this, when he had first visited Beale Street at the age of 16 in 1939, he determined he was going to live in Memphis someday and not in the fancy, you know, hoity-toity part of Memphis, but he was drawn by Beale Street, which was known as uh, uh, Black America's Main Street and sort of rivaled the Harlem of the, uh, uh, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, but more in a musical sense. And so when he got the opportunity to go to Memphis with WREC, which was a great uh, station, but was maybe, uh, you, you could tell me, but it was maybe 5,000 watts as opposed to the 50,000 watt clear channel of the WLAC, he went, there right. a, he went there as an engineer and, and as an announcer. You know, he's, I think one of his monikers was partner for his Hillbilly show. Uh, but uh, he, uh, um, he it, just Beale Street kept calling to him, kept pulling at him. And uh, it was really the sounds that he heard. And then, uh, and I'm sure you can recognize this again as a radio man, when he saw the success that down-home blues singers uh, like Lightning Hopkins and uh, John Lee Hooker, particularly Boogie Children, were having in the late 40s, he realized that this drive he had to present and represent African-American music in all of its inspiration, its glory, you know, what had inspired him over the years, uh, he had to open his own little studio against common sense, against uh, you know any kind of uh, self-interest, against wisdom, and against job security. Because eventually he lost his job because of that. But he opened up his his studio on January second, nineteen fifty, with the avowed attention of uh, uh, of you know I, I lose these quotes now, haven't I? But of giving some of the great Negro artists, this is a term of respect, some of the great Negro artists in the South an opportunity record, which they just don't have anywhere else. That was the entire reason for his opening the studio. What was the, the biggest uh, artistic and commercial success that, that he had with Sun before Elvis came along in, in 1954? What was it? Was it Rocket 88? Was that the biggest success? By far the biggest uh, success that he had uh, prior to Elvis, and in some ways it may have surpassed uh, Elvis's sales uh, because... Uh, that's all right. Eventually, may have sold uh, 130,000 copies. That was the first record he put out on Elvis. But probably it didn't sell. Uh, it may have sold 80, 90, 100,000 copies at the beginning, and then continued to sell. But Rocket 88 sold more than 100,000 copies in 1951, in the spring of 51, right off the bat. Now this was a an R&B hit uh, exclusively. Uh, it was. It's been called the uh, first rock and roll record. And it wasn't Sam who called it that. It was Paul Ackerman at Billboard, contemporaneous with the rise of rock and roll. Paul Ackerman was the editor of Billboard, and he he saw Rocket '88 because of the drive of its rhythm, because of its subject matter. You know, it's a fast car, and uh, I, you know, just because of the the freshness of its approach. He saw that in retrospect as being the first rock and roll record. I don't think there was any such thing as first any any more than there's somebody any, anybody who could have invented rock and roll. I mean, it, it, you can you can name whatever you like for that, uh, uh, so long as you stick to the African American side, which is where it came from. But uh, but Rocket '88 just took off in Sam's work, in the advertising like a rocket. That was the whole theme of the, you know, the everything, the promotion, the, and 
and it was an astonishing success, and it was the first record that he placed with Leonard Chess, whom he had just met maybe three or four days before recording Rocket 88, and, who, and, and whom he was so won over by, Leonard Chess of Chess Records, that he switched his allegiance from uh, Modern Records, uh, from, from uh, Jules Bahari at Modern Records, to Chess just on the spot. And it just absolutely took off, but it didn't take off in quite the way that Sam had anticipated. In, his, in um, he got Sam Sam got a reporter from the uh, Memphis Commercial Appeal, or it might, might have been the Press Seminar, I'm not sure, uh, to come out to see Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm, whom he had renamed Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, at the uh, W.C. Handy Theater in Orange Mound, uh, with right after Rocket 88 came out. And the reporter, who was actually a business reporter, not a music reporter, but somebody Sam knew, gave Ike Turner a great, uh, a great review. Said he was the, he was the next Fats Waller, which was a great praise, but maybe not that accurate. But he interviewed Sam for this for this article, and Sam spoke at that time in May of '51 of how he saw Rocket '88 as being music for all people. He felt that it was going to cross over from the R&B category. It was going to break down the whole idea of category. And it was going to reach a mainstream audience, uh, which uh, which meant white, of course. Uh, it meant mixed. I mean, it included white. And uh, that was his firm belief in the music, that music could break down all categories and it could knock down the walls of segregation, which eventually, with rock and roll, it did. But it didn't with Rocket 88. I'm fascinated in the, your, uh, the account of the, the first uh, time that Elvis Presley came into Sun Studio, how... It was only someone with the incredible ears of Sam Phillips who heard something in Elvis because the session really didn't go much anywhere. And it seems like anyone else but Sam Phillips would have said, bye-bye, thanks for coming in. There's really nothing there, you know. And But he heard something in Elvis's voice. I'm just, it, it's incredible how it seems anybody other than Seemingly, Sam Phillips would have would have dismissed Elvis as, as not having it. He was just right, so so shy, and none of the songs were really a, amounting to much of anything. And so that's all right. Kind of came out almost accidentally in the studio, right? It did. Well, as, as Sam said to Carl Perkins, that this is what we are at, at Sun. We're just one big inspired mistake. And in a certain sense. All of the records that he recorded, I mean, Marion Keisker, who was his assistant, uh, his amanuensis, who wanted to help him in any way she possibly could, and who was who was deeply in love with him. She had worked at WREC, she was working at WREC with him, and was a prominent Memphis radio personality. But she said about Sam, in a man not, uh, not ordinarily given to patience, not by character, you know, given to patience, he showed the most extraordinary patience in the studio, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And you're absolutely right. He waited for Elvis, but he also waited for many of the blues singers for their talent, not their talent, for their gift, for their, for their. Um, uh, I'm not sure quite what you'd call it, but, you know, the thing that most characterized them, the, the, the thing that they most wanted to express for it to manifest itself, because it didn't at first. They might be self-conscious. I mean, Sam said of Elvis that he was uh, the most introspective of all the artists he ever recorded and also one of the most insecure. Uh, so from Sam's point of view, the, the game was as much as anything else. It was waiting and recognizing when that, when that um, 
I, I just can't get around the word talent, but when that talent manifests, it really isn't talent, but when that gift, when that mark manifested itself. And with Elvis, just as you described, he uh, came in for an audition session with uh, Scotty Moore, the guitarist, who had sort of served as Sam's talent scout in this instance. He had listened to Elvis the day before at his house, and with Bill Black, uh, the bass player. And they they played for hour after hour, um, one ballad after another, because that's what Elvis saw himself as uh, at the beginning of his career and to some extent at the end of his career, too. Uh, and Sam loved ballads, but he didn't see those as expressing what Elvis had within himself. And uh, during a break, and all of the, all three of them were working, uh, Elvis, uh, Scotty Moore, and uh, Bill Black, and they all had to get up early to go to work the next day. During a break, and uh, Scotty and Bill were t- t- having uh, drinking a Coke, and Sam was just fooling around in the control room. And Elvis, I think at this point, Elvis was just desperate to retrieve the situation. He saw his opportunity slipping away, and he started frailing away on the guitar and playing a song that um, uh, that was totally unlike anything he had played to date uh, to, up to that point in the uh, audition. And the song was uh, uh, That's All Right by Arthur Big Boy Crudup. It was a blues. And Sam just immediately snapped to He just snapped to it. And he said, what's that you're doing? As Scotty and Bill fell in, and Scotty said, we don't know. And Sam said, well, whatever it is, uh, you know, figure out what it is, back up and start all over again. And that's what they did. And and Sam immediately knew that, that he had something magical. That, Instantly. That and, he, and, he, and he went home that night, and he told his wife, Becky, who is by no means... Sam could be described as a colorful speaker, somebody who, you know, who was prone to... Um, both big words and and I don't think exaggeration, but he but he didn't hold back. Becky was not. Beck Becky was the quietest. She was the sweetest person in the world and quiet and modest. But she always she she always recalled or she recalled to me anyway how Sam came home that night and he said I recorded a record tonight. I recorded a song tonight that's going to change our lives and it did change everybody's lives. The, the same situation with Johnny Cash too, where you know the Johnny Cash we all know and all of the, these hits and great songs it. it wasn't instantaneous there. No, it wasn't. It wasn't even Johnny Cash. It was John Cash. At, <laughs> right. at, at most, it was John R. Cash. Johnny was Sam's. You know, felt it would make appeal more to a teenage audience. I think. But but I'm sorry, you're going to ask me about that. Yeah. Well, to, to describe like the, the the first John slash Johnny Cash session, that thing it took a little while for for his music, his aesthetic to really uh, emerge. And, and also incredible was the fact that. His bandmates were. This is. These are really primitive, quote unquote, musicians. These were not. They could. They could barely get through a song. But that was part of what made them so special. Well, that, that's right. I mean, Johnny Cash came in, or John R. Cash, we'll call him that for a minute, uh, came into the studio, and he was drawn in like almost every single one of the, uh, you know, white, poor white, hillbilly, whatever you want to call them, performers, Carl Perkins. Eventually, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, uh, Sonny Burgess, uh, Roy Orbison—they were all drawn in by Elvis, and they were drawn in not by the iconic Elvis. They were drawn in by the just the revolutionary sound that they heard, and the uh, and the almost revolutionary performance style that they witnessed. And and they were aware of rhythm and blues. Sonny uh, Burgess had a rhythm you know, a band that focused on R and B, but uh, I, I don't think it's possible to get across to an audience today how fresh Elvis's sound was, how unusual it was. It wasn't, I'm not saying it, was, it wasn't greater than 
Howlin' Wolf. I mean, Sam always said that Howlin' Wolf was the most profound artist that he ever encountered. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and he said that this is where the soul of man never dies. Now, you can't beat that. You can't get any better than this is where the soul of man never dies. And that was Howlin' Wolf. And little Junior Parker was an amazing performer. And so it wasn't that Sam was ranking people. But John, Johnny Cash came in because he had seen Elvis at the opening of the Cat's Drugstore. He knew the success of the records, and he sensed the openness to originality and difference that Sam Phillips had. Uh, but he came in as a gospel singer, primarily. And Sam loved gospel. He had worked extensively with the John Daniel Quartet when he was at WLAI in Memphis, when he was at the radio station in Decatur. But he didn't feel he could sell gospel music. And... Uh, Finally, Johnny Cash. I don't know how many. How finally, maybe an exaggeration, but but Johnny Cash came in with a song called "Hey Porter," which he had started when he was in the Air Force in Germany, or maybe he had written the poem. Uh, and uh, Sam said, "Okay, now that's now you really got something. And um, you know, if you could uh, write a, a uh, another song, another original, um, an up-tempo weeper, then." Um, you know, we could put out a, a put out a record, a 45, a single, and Johnny Cash came back a little while later with "Cry, Cry, Cry." Not, not much later at all, and that was, you know, that was the um, the first single that they put out. But uh, you're right about uh, his uh, the Tennessee too. Uh, Luther Perkins, in particular, the guitarist, uh, could barely get through a take. I mean, he was had a wonderful and original sound. He wasn't trying to sound bad, and it doesn't sound bad. But he would get so nervous that he could, and he had so little experience that he could barely get through a tape, uh, a take. And um, at one point, uh, Johnny Cash, who uh, uh, who was as committed as Sam to originality, to difference, but he said to Sam, you know, why don't we why don't we get somebody in here who can? I mean, he just got frustrated because Sam was not going to put out a spliced take. He could he could have spliced it, but that wasn't. He wanted the freshness of. You know, of spontaneity. He wanted the thing to go, uh, to go all the way through. And Johnny Cash said, "Why don't we get somebody who can play all the way through a take?" And uh, and um, uh, Sam just said, "Absolutely not." I mean, you know, that uh, Luther Perkins, the guitarist, is the key to the Johnny Cash sound. This is, you know, I want this as much as I want you, as much as I want your voice. And he didn't. There was nobody he admired more than Johnny Cash. But he said, "We're sticking with Luther Perkins," and they did. <clears throat> Well, let's finish up by by having you, Peter, um, talk about one other artist who who is very important to you as well. And I, I want you to choose. We talked about Elvis. We talked about Johnny Cash. We talked about Howlin' Wolf a little bit, and and BB King. Name, name a, another artist who who was discovered through Sam Phillips, uh, who's particularly important to you as well. Who are we? Who have we not mentioned? Who you would like to mention? Well, I would have said Howlin' Wolf, but but as you say, we've we've spoken of him, and 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 I've got to mention uh, Jerry Lee Lewis in passing, who, uh, or just because we don't have any time, but who, whom uh, uh, Sam considered the most musically gifted of all the artists he ever recorded. I mean, just an astonishing, uh, you know, people see Jerry Lee as a kind of novelty, but in fact, he, he's a genius. He can play anything, any tempo, any style. Uh, and um, he's, uh, he's 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 a brilliant person whose brilliance hasn't always helped him in his own life, 
but his insights are just astonishing, both musical and otherwise. But I'll, I'm going to pick Charlie Rich. Having I've, I've really cheated here, haven't I? Oh, that's fine. Cheat away, please. <laughs> but but Charlie Rich uh, was is was somebody. Oddly enough, he was the one person that Sam put up with Howlin' Wolf as really being the most profound artist. I mean, Howlin' Wolf was number one with Sam, but but Charlie was equally number one or one A, if you're going to say, you know, if you if you have to create a division, subdivision, and and mainly, and these are two totally different artists. Charlie Rich was a jazz player. He was he was a blues singer, but he he was at heart a, a jazz player. He was. Uh, a much more sophisticated style than almost anybody else Sam recorded but what Sam valued him for and I guess what I valued him for I mean I knew I knew Charlie for I guess 25 years uh, and because uh, I met him 10 years before I met Sam and um, he, Sam always said about him uh, he uh, wears his uh, his nerve endings uh, on the outside and that's what comes through in his music and I think that's why Sam uh valued him so highly and Charlie Rich was the one artist Sam went out to see regularly uh, uh, you know perform live regularly and he went out to see him all the time at this club on Madison Avenue his name I'm going to forget now Uh, and he would go out to see him and even though Charlie was playing jazz which was not the style that Sam was going to record or was going to market he was completely uh, he, he he could go out he was completely drawn in by Charlie's music but he he never felt that he gave Charlie the attention that he deserved or actually gave Charlie the opportunity to express what was most within him, which eventually came out on his recordings uh, for RCA, for Smash, uh, uh, and for a little bit for High, too. But um, but he, uh, uh, I think the one time that he gave, uh, that he felt he drew a full expression of what Charlie meant to, you know, what Charlie was capable of was on Who Will the Next Fool Be, which was the second song that he recorded in his uh, new studio in Nashville. He just opened it up. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is uh, singing What Did I Say was the first session that Sam produced there, and, and that was Jerry Lee's the beginning of Jerry Lee's return to pop respectability, if, if that is uh, if yeah, that's yeah. the term to apply to him. And then Charlie yeah. Rich's Who Will the Next Fool Be, which is just such a beautiful song, and was recorded so beautifully by Bobby Blue Bland and lots of others, but Charlie's version is, is just so deep and so beautiful and, and I think Sam was really proud of having uh, having recorded at least that. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with Peter Grolnick about his book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. After you get rid of me Who will the next fool?